Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Boards. I'm your host today. My name is Mariah, and today we'll be reviewing a few immunology questions. So our first question is as follows. A 40-year-old woman comes to the clinician for an eight-month history of redness and itching in both eyes. She's also had swelling and pain in the fingers of both hands and wrists joints over the past four months. She has had multiple dental treatments for oral infections over the past year. She has type 2 diabetes mellitus and her sister has Hashimoto thyroiditis. Her medications include metformin and her vitals are within normal limits. Exam shows thickened lesions over her wrists and knees and range of motion is limited by pain. Oropharyngeal exam reveals dry mucous membranes and multiple dental caries. The eye exam is slightly decreased in both eyes. Her lab studies show ESR is 48, ANA and rheumatoid factor are positive. This condition is associated with which of the following antibodies? A. Anti-centromere antibodies. B. Anti-U1 RNP antibodies. C. Anti-Rho SSA antibody. Or D. Anti-DSDNA antibodies. So some of the biggest things that I'm looking at when I read this question um, that I'd like to highlight are that this patient has dry eyes, which is their ophthalmia, and uh, dry mouth, which is their ostomia. When I read this question, in my head, I like to look at the options to see which of the antibodies in the options correlate with which disease. Um, for A, we have anti-centromere antibodies, and anti-centromere is the antibody that's in patients who have Crest syndrome. And uh, the second option was anti-U1 RNP antibodies. These are present in people with mixed connective tissue disease. Um, C is anti-Rho SSA antibody. That's for patients who have Sjogren's disease. And D is anti-DSDNA antibodies, which is present in people who have SLA. So I would probably go with the anti-Rho SSA antibody because we know that Sjogren's syndrome presents with dry eyes and dry mouth. And um, she, this patient is... Um, known for having infections, dental treatments for oral infections, and it says that the eye exam is slightly decreased in both eyes. So she's also had redness and itching in both eyes. Um, and also, I think they like to, they're trying to tell us that she has um, rheumatoid disease as well, which is indicated by the positive ANA and the elevated ESR. And that's because Sjogren's normally can present with other sorts of disorders, such as rheumatoid disease. Um, and also the family history, like the Hashimoto's thyroiditis and her sister is also um, something that we can uh, look at because that can also present in patients who have Sjogren's syndrome. So the answer for that would be um, anti-Rho SSA antibody, and that is for Sjogren's syndrome. So the next question is, a 35-year-old male comes to the physician due to a five-month history of severe abdominal bloating pain, and episodic diarrhea. He also had a 20-pound weight loss during this time. A biopsy specimen of the colonic mucosa showed non-caseating granulomas and scattered areas of inflammation with some fibrosis. 
Which of the following is most likely involved in the pathogenesis of this condition? Is it A, antibodies against tissue transglutaminases, B, accumulation of intracellular bacteria and macrophages, C, viral infection and internuclear inclusions, or D, increased activity of type 1 T helper cells? So when I read this question, something that pops out to me is the non-caseating granulomas because one of the most common diseases that we see this with is Crohn's disease. I can kind of narrow down some of my um, answer choices knowing that this could be Crohn's disease. So for example, the option that said viral infection with intranuclear inclusions, um, that's more something like CMV or HSV. So I could exclude that because those have um, the Cowdery A inclusion bodies, not these um, non-caseating granulomas. Um, the other option, antibodies against tissue transglutaminase. So that's normally um, an indicator for celiac disease. So in this case, even though this patient has abdominal pain, weight loss, and diarrhea, a biopsy of celiac disease would show loss of bili, uh, increased intraepithelial lymphocytes, and not the inflammation and scarring that was found with this patient. And then we had um, option B, which was accumulation of intracellular bacteria and macrophages. This would be present in things like uh, the T. whipoli, which is Whipple's disease, um, or mycobacterium avium intracellulare. This patient's biopsy clearly says that they have inflammation and scarring and fibrosis, whereas um, you don't see any macrophages like you would in Whipple disease. So we could take that one out. And the last answer choice was increased activity of type 1 helper T cells. This would be the most likely pathogenesis because Crohn's disease does involve the inflammatory processes. Um, so we have Th1 cells that release specific cytokines like interferon gamma, um, and these activate macrophages, which cause tissue damage and fibro, uh, fibrotic scarring. This helps create the skip lesions that we see in Crohn's disease. This normally spares the rectum, whereas the other disease we talk about with the colon is ulcerative colitis, which always, always involves the rectum. And these macrophage activations also leads to the, uh, lead to the non-caseating granulomas in inflammatory tissue, which is another sign of Crohn's disease. So I think this question was pretty uh, pretty straightforward. If you knew the non-caseating granulomas and the uh, some of the symptoms a patient was having, like the abdominal pain and diarrhea, it's pretty easy to narrow down. So now we will move on to the next question. Okay, so the next question is, a three-month-old boy is brought to the ED due to a three-day history of lethargy and poor feeding. Since he was born, he has had two episodes of bilateral otitis media. Umbilical cord separation happened at 9 weeks. His temperature is 101.3, and he also has white patches in his mouth and scaly arithmetic skin lesions in his groin. He has an increased neutrophil count and a normal platelet count. Blood cultures grow candida albicans. Which of the following is the cause of this patient's condition? Is it A, defective NADPH oxidase? B, defective microtubules? C, defective CD40 ligand? or D, defective beta-2 integrin. So when I first see this, I seeing, since I see candida albicans, I'm, I want to pick 
NADPH oxidase because I know that that deficiency can cause candida infections. However, I think this question gives us another big clue, which is the umbilical cord separation taking a very long time. Normally, the umbilical cord will separate around two to three weeks. In this um, baby, it said that they had it even at nine weeks and it separated at nine weeks. So that's kind of like a buzz, um, like a buzz phrase kind of thing where I know that the name of the disease that they're talking about is leukocyte adhesion deficiency um, type 1. And that is actually uh, caused by an autosomal recessive defect in something called CD18. And it's also known as beta 2 integrin. So um, I would pick that as my answer. And just to go over the other answers, we have defective NADPH oxidase, deficiency, uh, defective NADPH oxidase. So that's describing chronic granulomatous disease, which is CGD, and that can present with candidiasis and neutrophilia. Um, but these also tend to be localized, and sepsis isn't normally that common, whereas in this patient, we see that he um, seems to be having <clears throat> some symptoms of sepsis. Um, and CGD also presents with granulomas. You don't see the delayed umbilical separation in CGD, so that's why I'm more likely to pick the beta-2 integrin deficiency. And then the other option was defective microtubules. So this would, um, this is another disorder we learn about. This is in Tadayak Higashi syndrome, and this is when there's a loss of function at the lysosomal trafficking regulator, uh, regulator gene. So in this, patients normally have neutropenia, not neutrophilia, and they would have um, albinism, oculocutaneous albinism, um, strabismus, nystagmus, and again, the umbilical cord separation uh, delay would not be seen in this disease. And then the last option was defective CD40 ligand. That happens when um, a patient has type 1 hyper IgM syndrome. Uh, this manifests with recurrent infections during the first two years of life. Again, the patient will have neutropenia rather than neutrophilia, and delayed umbilical cord separation would not be expected here. So take home points, the delayed umbilical cord separation, um, you want to think of LAD, leukocyte adhesion deficiency type 1, and that is a CD18 defect, aka beta-2 integrin. Then our next question. A 45-year-old man comes to the ED due to severe muscle pain and fever for five days. He consumed bear meat five weeks ago. Exam shows generalized muscle weakness and tenderness and periorbital edema. Leukocyte count is 12,000 with 19% eosinophils. The release of major basic protein in response to this patient's infection is most likely a result of which of the following? Is it A, antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity? B, increased expression of MHC class 1 molecules? C, interaction between Th1 cells and macrophages, or D, immune complex-dependent complement activation. So this was a tricky question, and I never really catch these kind of questions because it's parasite that they're talking about. Um, so one of the points in this question that's important is that this patient ate bear meat and that he has muscle weakness and tenderness. And this is due to a possible trichinella parasitic infection. Um, trichinella species is normally transmitted through ingestion of their larvae in undercooked meat, especially in pork, but also in bear. So patients present with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, things like that. And sometimes in severe infections and in severe forms, 
the larvae can actually go into the skeletal muscle and cause weakness, periorbital edema, and eosinophilia. This um, question is a little, it sounds complicated. It's a little intimidating because of all the long options. So again, to repeat, we have A, antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, B, increased expression of MHC class 1, C, interaction between TH1 cells and macrophages, and D, immune complex-dependent complement activation. So just going backwards, let's go over each of these options one by one. So immune complex-dependent complement activation. This is uh, just a complicated way of saying type 3 hypersensitivity, but this patient actually has a helminthic infection, and type 3 hypersensitivity um, isn't triggered by a helminthic infection, so we take that um, option out. Option B is increase MHC class 1 molecules. And in this case, this would happen more in a viral response. So they don't, uh, MHC class 1 molecules don't actually play that big of a role against helminthic infections such as trichinellosis. So we can take that option out as well. This is more for when the cells are infected by viruses and then MHC class 1 molecules act in, this, in the viral responses. C was interaction between Th1 cells and macrophages. So Th1 cells um, and macrophages actually help in immune responses regarding intracellular pathogens, and this is where IFN gamma and TNF-alpha are very important. But however, this is mostly seen in intracellular bacteria and uh, viruses and not really helminth infections, so we can take this option out as well. And the last option is antibody-dependent cell-mated cytotoxicity. So this is actually the correct answer. This is this type of um, cytotoxicity is really important to defend against helminthic infections. So what happens is that IgE molecules actually coat the pathogens, um, and they're recognized by FC receptor-bearing granulocytes such as eosinophils. And this interaction of the IgE and the receptor actually stimulates the release of cytotoxic granules like major basic protein, and that re- that leads to the the death of the pathogen. And just a quick um, tidbit, major basic protein is a, the predominant granule of eosinophils. So it's involved in defense against helminths and parasites. It's also very relevant, uh, relevant in allergic asthma as well. So that was the answer to that. First, figuring out that this patient has trichinellosis and then figuring out the response and just trying to decipher the complicated type of answer choices that we have. And then our next question. So we have a nine-year-old boy is brought to the physician due to a four-day history of joint pain, fever, and malaise. He had a sore throat six weeks ago that resolved. Physical exam shows several firm painless nodules on the skin near his elbows and the dorsal side of both wrists. A hollow systolic murmur is heard best at the apex, and his ESR is increased, which of the following most likely caused this immune response. Is it A, camp factor? And that's capital C, capital A, capital M, capital P. Is it B, IgA protease, C, TSST1, which is toxic shock syndrome toxin, or is it D, M protein? So just to break this down, basically we have a kid who presented after he had a sore throat six weeks ago, and now he has uh, nodules, joint pain, fever, and a holosystolic murmur. So basically, since he has fever, joint pain, and with the murmur, he has mitral valve regurg, this shows that this patient probably has rheumatic fever. 
So in answering this, we need to know which antigens or which virulence factors are involved with rheumatic fever. So going one by one, first, our option is CAMP factor. And this is actually a protein that's made by group B streptococcus, so GBS. And this is not relevant in this patient because this causes more meningitis, sepsis, pneumonia, and neonates, but it's not involved in rheumatic fever at all. Option B was IgA protease. Um, This is actually a virulence factor from bacteria that lets them cleave IgA and adhere to mucous membranes. It's made by several gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, such as strep pneumo and H influenza, and also Neisseria. Uh, These aren't involved in acute rheumatic fever. Even though some of these can cause pharyngitis, IgA protease is not involved in acute rheumatic fever. Option C was TSST1, toxic, toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. So this toxin is made by Staph aureus. And this binds outside of the antigen binding site of T-cell receptors at MHC2. It's a super antigen. It induces the release of multiple cytokines and causes toxic shock syndrome. Um, This would show skin peeling, vomiting, diarrhea, myalgias, things like that. So not not involved in rheumatic fever. So our last option is M-protein. This is a virulence factor made by group A streptococcus. So this helps prevent phagocytosis, and it inhibits the alternative pathway of the complement system. This plays an important role in the autoimmune response that rheumatic fever presents with. This will cause a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction if antibiotics aren't given. And the reason this occurs is because M-protein shares a few similar epitopes to human myocardial and nerve proteins. So this leads to an autoimmune attack on the heart, and this can cause acute rheumatic fever. So um, M-protein is the reason that we have the immune response in this patient. So the next question is, a three-year-old boy is brought to the ED due to high fever, cough, and ear pain for the past three days. He's had recurrent respiratory tract infections and several episodes of giardiasis and viral gastroenteritis since he was six months old. His palatine tonsils and adenoids are hypoplastic. He has decreased levels of CD19, 20, and 21. Which of the following is most likely the cause of this patient's condition? Is it A, mutation in the WAS gene? B, a defect in the IL-2R gamma chain? C, a mutation in tyrosine kinase gene? D, a microdeletion on the long arm of chromosome 22? Or E, a mutation in NADPH oxidase gene? So looking at this question, I think it's very important to realize that this patient um, had all these different sorts of things happening to him, the the gastroenteritis and stuff like that, when he was six months old. And that's most likely because his maternal IgG started to decrease at that age. And another buzz phrase, buzzword type of thing to look out for is that um, someone has uh, hypoplastic tonsils. And it said uh, his palatine tonsils and his adenoids were hypoplastic. And normally when we look at that, um, I think of X-linked agammaglobinemia, which is a Bruton tyrosine kinase gene mutation. Just to go over the other options before we dive deeper into this one. For A, it was a mutation in the WAS gene. So WAS gene mutations cause something called Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, and the patient presents with recurrent infections, 
However, you also have things like eczema and thrombocytopenic purpura. That's very high yield. So, um, and you don't have hypoplastic lymphoid tissues with Wiscott Aldrich. And you also don't have low levels of mature B cells. So it's probably not the, this option. Um, for B, we have defect in IL-2R gamma chain. So this is one of the, the types of mutations that can cause SCID, which is severe combined immunodeficiency. So people um, with SCID, they normally present a normal at birth, but then they start getting severe recurrent infections. And these include bacterial, fungal, viral, and protozoal infections. These children fail to thrive. And um, normally it's really lethal within the first year of life if it's not treated immediately. And um, you won't see a deficiency of mature B cells because in this disease, you have more T cell receptor excision circles that are decreased and you have absent T cells on peripheral blood flow cytometry. So you're not going to see the deficiency of mature B cells like you do in this patient. So then we can eliminate defect in IL-2 or gamma chain. Option C is mutation in tyrosine kinase deficiency. So that was the correct answer. Option D is the microdilation on the long arm of chromosome 22. So this is DeGeorge syndrome. This is where the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches don't develop. Uh, these patients present with recurrent infections. However, these infections result in a hypoplastic thymus and a decrease in T cells and not a decrease in mature B cells. Um, also, normally patients with DeGeorge's have hypocalcemia because they have hypoparathyroidism. They also could have cleft palate and cardiac anomalies, which we don't see in this patient. The last option is a mutation in the NADPH oxidase gene, which leads to a defective NADPH oxidase enzyme. And that causes chronic granulomatous disease, which is CGD. So these patients could also present with skin conditions like recurrent skin infections and eczematous rashes. And they can also have granuloma formation in their GI and GU tracts. And this can cause things like dysuria urinary retention and things like that. This patient doesn't have anything. And also CGD, you would not see a decrease in mature B cells. So um, we can eliminate that choice as well. So coming back to the right answer, a mutation in Bruton um, or the Bruton tyrosine kinase gene causes X-linked A-gamma globinemia. So BTK, which is the uh, Bruton tyrosine kinase, is a signal transduction protein found on B cells. And without it, you don't have proper B cell maturation. So this causes a severe reduction in plasma cells and immunoglobulins. The main feature of this that can help us differentiate this from the other immunodeficiency disorders is the tonsillar hypoplasia because you have a decrease of B cell volume. So that's the most uh, suggestive of X-linked A-gamma globinemia, which is caused by a mutation in the tyrosine kinase gene. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys ever have any questions, never hesitate to reach out to us. If you have any feedback, we'd really appreciate it. Best of luck to everyone. 